Hello, Emma. Welcome to Hi. our virtual space. Thank you. Um, it's good to uh, have a chance to talk, uh, you know, a week late, but week and a half late, but talk about our last uh, class session on Julia Kristeva's book, uh, The Power of Horror. I wanted to start just by talking a little bit about why I chose this particular book and chose chose Kristeva as part of a of a critical theory seminar. On the one hand, I think it's really obvious. I mean, Kristeva is an incredibly important writer. I think she's kind of fallen from appreciation. I think people don't read and cite her as much as they used to in, say, the 1990s. Um, I could be wrong about that. I hope I'm wrong about that because I think her work is just incredibly important. Um, and uh, But for me, it's not just, you know, Julia Kristeva is an important thinker, but she's also an, an, a key element for me of the story of, of the course so far. And I don't want to rehearse, well, I do want to, but I won't uh, rehearse the entirety of the, of the, the semester's uh, direction so far. But I just want to underscore, you know, this, it's been a theme that came up as a critical dimension when we were talking about people like Bloom. Um, but then has become an explicit theme in the uh, in the texts that we've read from especially Derrida and Spivak, which is what do we do with questions of absence and silence? Or maybe better put in terms of the Kristeva piece, uh, what do we do with those things that are are don't lend themselves to representation or presence, but nevertheless structure something about our affective lives? And what Kristeva brings for me is this <clears throat> like methodological question, which is a question of psychoanalysis, but also linking that methodological question of psychoanalysis to an accounting of, I don't want to necessarily say the specificity, but the peculiarity of the question of women and, and, women and woman as a category in critical theory. And so in this book about abjection, um, her insistence from the very beginning on the abject being this unnameable feature that animates our sensual lives, right? The lives of our senses, but also our affective lives and our subconscious. Uh, it's so important to me because first of all, I think it helps make sense of why certain things, or just gives us a language for talking about why certain things animate us with such disgust you know I, I love her example I'm, I'm always curious how people think about the example when she talks about the skin on the top of, of fresh milk and mm -hmm. how that's disgusting and but you can't really explain what it is yet there is this affect and it's that mm -hmm. can't explain but there is this affect and for me that then becomes productive at the uh, on the one hand at the affect level the epistemological level what does it mean to know or not know what fills us with certain feelings mm -hmm. but also for me i think it's this transition we can make from a uh, general theory of abjection to its political resonance around misogyny around transphobia around homophobia Right, this fascination with the with disgust that is at the heart of so much uh, hatred, of so much, um, you know, violent. So many of the violent forms of discrimination that it's not just like, I think women should play a role in society like this. It's like disgust around, 
you know, women's embodiment, right, or around trans embodiment, or around same-sex sexuality, right? All of these things that animate hatreds have such roots in the abject, and I also think it helps me understand, and I'll, I'll ask you sort of things that sort of caught your eye, but it helps me understand why it's so difficult, if not outright impossible, to address those forms of hatred because we're not even talking about something that's represented and then we can negotiate the meaning of it. It's like those hatreds are animated by a disgust around something that's not representable. And so we actually getting, in terms of politics, getting any kind of critical perspective and intervention, is just so difficult. And it is difficult. And so like, why is it difficult? I feel like Kristeva gives me such a rich language for that. So, you know, I'm curious what sort of things caught you. I know this was a piece that you were especially looking forward to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I'm thinking a lot about what you said about the sort of political implications of abjection. And I'm thinking of a very specific example. And I don't know, this is, it, I, I don't really know what to make of this, but it's like this weird juxtaposition with um, people who are transphobic this like I f there's this constant the thing that I'm thinking about is there are two things one was there was some senator that was um, in uh, like they were doing some sort of a conversation in the Senate with a, a trans woman and the senator asked her do you or do you not have male genitalia and it was a horrific question and everyone in the room sort of reacted with yeah. justifiable anger at that and and horror that he would even ask that um, and then I'm, I'm, I will analyze it. But there's a second example um, that just recently happened on Twitter. There is some woman who I believe is like, um, she does something with like um, gynecology or like the study of the vagina, something like along the, I think it's more academic than actually medical. But she went on this really, I think in her eyes, unintentionally transphobic rant she didn't really seem to understand why what she was saying was transphobic but a lot of people you know were pointing out mm -hmm. this is transphobic she was talking about the way that a vulva looks when surgery has been done to it and so in that vein she was talking about um, trans women that get um, surgery mm -hmm. to um, recreate to create um, a vulva and a vagina and I just think those two, she, and she's so fascinated by it. And she keeps like, I mean, she, you know, it gets to the point of sexual harassment. She's asking trans women like outright, show me pictures. And it's like, it's very invasive. Hmm. And I, there's something really interesting to me about that obsessive desire to know about the physicality of that sort of like physical quote unquote authenticity of transness that these transphobes have mm -hmm. that I feel like has a, it's like a weird contrast with this, you know, their disgust with it. It just seems to me like, and I guess it is kind of like that desire to know, that desire to know what is what is real, what is the truth, you know, what is a, a true, what does a true vagina look like, you know, uh -huh. and it's just kind of like, I don't know. I think that that juxtaposition of disgust with something that does not fit into their 
you know, symbolic order, but then also the desire to know all of the kind of intense, invasive, honestly, sometimes, you know, very sexual and gory details. Mm -hmm. Those just seem like they're at odds. And I don't really, I don't really know what to make of that, but that's just what came to mind as, as you were talking. Yeah, I mean, when you know, talking about that that, that relationship between disgust and fa disgust and fascination, um, I think that's central to understanding abjection, because if abjection was simply about banning from sight, we couldn't have, you know, what what preoccupies Kristeva uh, misogyny, um, yeah. and then as we're sort of extending it to think about uh, transphobia. Because there has to be a fascination with it that comes along, right? That, that a need to not just put it aside, but to to ceaselessly talk about it, right? To um, and there's something infantile about it, or not really infantile, but like toddler tile, right? Yeah, no, yeah, you're right. Because if you're around, like you know, sort of four or five year olds. They love to talk about, you know, poop, and it's so disgusting, and they start laughing, but they start talking about it, and how it smells, and how it looks, and how it's consistency, and how it feels, and where it goes, and, you know, they don't actually want to go touch it, right? They don't actually want to play with it, right, except in rare, I guess, rare cases, but they do want to talk about it, but their lack of a, of a like a, uh, their lack of of politics in the deepest sense, like uh, mm -hmm. and morality, the lack of it that comes with being sort of four years old, is they they sort of talk and laugh with abandon, but in that way, in the same way that they you know a kid will just blurt out something about their parents' genitals at the store, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, I remember. <laughs> I mean, I remember like it was yesterday. My oldest kid was like three, and we were just standing in line at Target. And he just yells out, my dad's penis has fur all over it, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, you know, everybody laughed, but, you know, it was just this, like, fascination and, like, funny and, like, to speak it out. But I think the relationship between, like, the, the, way, the, the way a child has an amoral kind of way of both being disgusted and fascinated at the same time is this sort of, I don't want to call it hardwired, but it's like this permanent structure that we see in adults but overlaid with like a moral politics right it's not just enough to be fascinated with it i think it's so interesting that you know the that the part of the transphobic uh, legislation i think there's it's deliberate at some some level of the unconscious if the unconscious can be deliberate to call it a bathroom bill right it's like mm. it's disgusting it's like where gross stuff happens and secret stuff happens. It's the ultimate realm of privacy. And so you can ratchet up this like politics and morality around it. That if it's just walking around, right? That's why I find it interesting the, the transphobic. I mean, it's not really a question of trans because drag and trans aren't the same thing, of course. But uh, although I think for conservatives, it probably is. But, you know, with a uh, story time, because that's so public, right? It's interesting the way they've tried to get traction with that. But those bathroom bills, because it hits this mo more moment of, like, extremely regulated privacy, but yeah. also that compulsion to talk about it. And we see that, you know, I know horror is an interest of yours just as a genre. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why horror is, like, shows us, you know, you know people's, like, heads exploding 
and you yeah. hide behind your blanket but the blanket has to be something you know you, this is audio but like you know like your fingers you know you hide behind it but yeah. you kind of peek you know Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like that that structure of horror ends up having this in same it gets played out around women's bodies for Kristeva, but other kinds of bodies too, in these incredibly violent ways because it's horror but not a representation of horror. It's literal horror. Women bleed, women poop, mm-hmm. right? Women whatever, right? They age, they yeah. wrinkle. Yeah. Oh my gosh, okay, I have like so many ideas. Um I'll stick with the with um, women's bodies for now and with older women. Um, so I like that's been something that's been on repeat in my mind because like after talking about it, you know, I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. Um, and in another class, we read um, Toni Morrison's, oh gosh, Recaf, R E C A I F. Oh yeah, I think. teeth. So, yeah, thank you. Okay. Um, and in that, it's basically the story where it's about these two girls, and they grow up, and they're both, uh, they're different races, but Morrison never says which which one is black and which one is white, and it's sort of about, like, racial strife and, and all this stuff. Um, and it's about, like, you know, reader expectations and all of that, but um, there's this one character of Maggie, and Maggie can't speak, which is really interesting. She can't be known, she can't say anything. Um, and they the two girls debate over what they what happened to maggie because maggie gets bullied a lot um by the girls and also like you know the the older girls that um because they're all in an orphanage anyway i said we were talking about it in class and i said something about how for morrison i'd be really interested in how morrison because it seems as though for her like um older women are these sort of archetypes of knowledge is power mm-hmm. and i feel like in my mind that's a way in when talking about objection and talking about the sort of um misogynistic horror of like in, in, in actual horror the crone the hag the witch the old woman yeah. um that idea that and i think this is kind of like at the heart of what i was trying to say last class there she, th- I think it's possible that older women, there's this kind of idea that they know the unknowable. They know something that you don't know, but at the same time, they won't be able to say it in a way that you'll understand. And I think that that ties back to Morrison's story about um, her Nobel... Um, yeah, Nobel lecture. Yeah, like I think it goes back to that. Like there is something that they know that you don't know but they will not or cannot tell you. Mm-hmm. And I think this also ties back to Morgan's example of the Fleabag scene, mm-hmm. where the one woman is telling Fleabag about, you know, then comes the menopause and it's fantastic and it's wonderful. There's something about that that you can't really know until you go through it. Mm-hmm. And I think. I don't know. There are a lot of thoughts I have about that. I'll, I'll maybe just stop there and see what you think about the Morrison Kristeva connection. Yeah, I think the you know that's there are many things that critical theory hasn't taken very seriously, and I think one of them is aging. And yeah. but I think what you're talking about is this opening through Kristeva uh, to thinking about aging in a gendered way. 
and sort of mm -hmm. that that unknowable in the sense that you know it's it you know hearing you talk what i was thinking about a lot as it sounds to me it, it, the, the the way the way it, it's sort of impacting my own thinking about about aging as as a sort of critical concept is actually shows me how deeply linked the idea of the feminine or woman is to abjection that once mm -hmm. that ab the primary form of that abjection is removed right menstruation mm -hmm. and even the capacity to to reproduce right there's something you know anyone who's been at a birth or given birth um it's it's full of fluids you know mm -hmm. and and sounds and body distortions that are mm -hmm. are terrifying right uh, um they're also beautiful because a hu human being emerges and you know you have a life together whatever but it's you know it, it is the body opening up itself and things flowing mm -hmm. out and so everything you know that's tied to the abjection of of the feminine or abjection of woman as a category like when you remove those things the fact that something about this category woman becomes unknowable i think reveals the deep connection of that to abjection to to woman as yeah. abjection as as that category of woman and therefore women circulate in a patriarchal society but of course yeah. women do talk to each other right and huh? that's a different genealogy that's a different epistemology right what can and can't be said sounds to me like it's looped through that the the link between woman and abjection and you remove the abjection and woman becomes unknowable as a category yet aging women know themselves or know something mm -hmm. about themselves or struggle to know about themselves but how do you communicate that in a world where the the sort of language of woman is a language of abjection and that abjection is gone does that make you yeah. more abject right the hag the crone the witch right the shriveled up you know spinster right even like the married spinster i think is almost like a category of this <clears throat> but it's like the unknowable reveals how deeply linked abjection is because you're no longer even negotiating abjection you're talking about something completely different yeah it's like i mean i was just thinking it's like life after death like it's like watching i mean and then of course this is <laughs> this is a very um gruesome way of saying it but it's like a, it's like a in terms of um how we on how in this sort of you know misogynistic symbolic order how we understand womanhood it's like watching a corpse walk around it's watching something that should no longer be a part of the order is still walking around and it knows something it knows something outside of this order that we that is is you know you, you can't confront it um and i'm thinking oh gosh i'm i have like so many essay ideas now there in the shining there is a scene where the old woman there's like this uh, spoiler alert if you haven't seen the shining you should watch it but i have seen the shining and it scared me so bad as a child i buried the book in the backyard <laughs> that's, oh that's right that's right <laughs> i've seen the movie a few times it's uh yeah it's fantastic yeah um but there's the scene where um jack sees this very young attractive woman in a bathtub in the hotel and the attractive woman comes out of the bathtub gives him a hug and they start making out and then all of a sudden she transforms into this rotting old woman 
And my favorite part of that scene is, as Jack walks away horrified that he's been making out with this corpse, she's laughing. Mm-hmm. And I like th- the fact that she's laughing is so, I just think there's something really powerful there. And I think that, that is, that's also something that I've been thinking about is how does like humor and comedy relate to abjection, thinking about like how little kids find, you know, bathroom jokes humorous, but also disgusting and fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I just think that's a really interesting aspect of it that the old lady is laughing at Jack's horror of her. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I I love that scene because I've always mm-hmm. thought that you know I don't know what you know Stephen King read or what Julia Kristeva read in terms of horror <laughs> um, in theory, but I think you're right. I mean, I think that that I've always thought of that like the scene of her or seeing her you know old and wrinkled is disgusting right and I, I i believe i mean i haven't seen the movie for quite a while but i think you even see the old woman's pubic hair in the yes, scene. yes she's completely nude in the front and yeah. that's like really i think that's really important because like mm. that's where i think kubrick like either understood or his subconscious sort of took control right to say like you have to show something you know her breasts and her pubic hair like she's a sexual body but wrinkled mm-hmm. and that that yeah. becomes this and, and i've always I, not always but i'm you know i see i i think of that when i think of abjection and disgust and and mm-hmm. the feminine right that she just you know did the the she committed the sin of aging visually Mm -hmm. right and that that makes her a new kind of disgusting but i had not thought about her laughing because you're right i i I don't know why i miss that now that you say it i'm like well that's actually maybe the most important part i mean what do you what do you think that takes us because that 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 again that gets us to the interior life of the aged woman right Uh, uh, who is is withdrawn from the economy of abjection for the at least that moment of of laughter right whereas he's completely entwined in it Mm -hmm. yeah i i'm thinking about her laughing in connection with the idea of old women as sexual um because you know like there are so many like tlc shows that are like you know uh about cougars and about like grandmas that are like going back out into the dating pool Mm -hmm. and everyone watches them and they laugh at them, but they're also kind of horrified by it. Yeah. The idea that a grandmother, you know, someone who should be at grandmother age is still a sexual being. And so thinking about her laughing, Hmm. it's almost like, I mean, and this is just, maybe, I mean, you know, this might be more of like a biased, well, I'm not biased. I mean, I think she's laughing at Jack's weakness. Yeah. I think it's almost like she's, I mean, <laughs> it's almost like the hotel as sort of like an entity through her is playing a prank on him. And it's almost like she knows what, how powerful her body is. It's so powerful. It physically repulses him. She doesn't even have to touch him to get him to move away from her. She's that powerful. Like her body her naked body is so terrifying to him that he has to back up. Mm-hmm. 
and I think she might be laughing. I mean, she's. I mean, and when she does laugh, she's laughing like a villain would laugh. Like I think there is power. It's almost kind of like I think you could kind of read that as like a. Um, Mm. I'm trying to think of what I would like almost flipping the script on him kind of like a de-identification like kind of being like no I'm like yeah my my body is horrifying to you and I find that funny mm-hmm. I don't know I, yeah it's, it's, a, it's an interesting aspect of that scene I mean this <clears throat> this a uh... you know this I, I think just, just embellishing what you just said but this I think one of the things that scene shows and, and that scene all of a sudden now I'm like there should be like a conference panel on that scene not on The Shining <laughs> but on that scene because one of the things that abjection does is on the one hand it creates a you know it sustains not creates but sustains a culture of violence against women right because things that are disgusting right can be disciplined and and harmed without guilt right without culpability they deserve it right as being you know if they're disgusting then they deserve the you know the violence that comes with that but one of the things that also when abjection is not just a personal affective relationship or in or to a to a to a to a non-human object like the skin on top of milk but rather part of the social symbolic order then you know, everyone is dependent in some ways on that abjection, most especially men in the patriarchal order, right? That the patriarchal order and therefore the identity of men as either patriarchs or proto-patriarchs as, as young men or boys, they're dependent upon that abjection, right? And so the what that means is once there's, a, you know, that, that sense of dependency is a kind of vulnerability, Right, it's vulnerability in a very different way than sort of vulnerable, and therefore we should be sympathetic, right? But vulnerable in terms of of, uh, of ontology, in terms of one's understanding of one's being and one's place in the world, and so that moment where she's able to, you know, flip the the abjection script, right, mm-hmm. and and refuse him, right, and watch him move away, and instead of crying, right, imagine if mm-hmm. she if she wept right or pleaded right those are ways of saying i am abject please look the other way at my abjection instead the way you know that you know that's the fear of witches is that they just really love being old right they really love being disgusting and outsiders and they have fun with it and they chant and they sing and they try to control the world with it and in that way that that moment that the woman in the shining or you know these TLC shows. That's interesting the way they the very structure of them. You know, as like older women on the dating scene who have like sexuality is like an object of fascination and disgust. I mean, that's in some ways it's that scene from The Shining, right? Yeah. Because yeah. I assume they're on the show. I haven't actually watched these. I, I watch a lot of garbage television, but I haven't I haven't <laughs> come to that corner yet. I probably will after we get done talking. But um, <laughs> I mentioned they're like, having fun right oh my gosh there's but one of the most famous episode oh sorry were you gonna say something no i said but but we're not supposed to enjoy their fun we're supposed to find their fun kind of disgusting yeah that's all. exactly yeah and i think like they're the one of the most famous episodes and the one that like <clears throat> i first saw was i mean she she must be like at least 
75, 80 or something. And she, she is so unapologetic and you can tell that the cameras are trying, like, you know, the, the editing and everything is trying to make her a spectacle and trying to sort of, you know, make fun of the fact that she is still a sexual being. Mm-hmm. But thinking about that, and I, I also probably will have to rewatch this episode after this, after this podcast, despite that editing, her power in knowing that people are going to find her abject and embracing that like that still shines through and i think that's why that episode is so famous like most people usually watch that one because it's it there's that tension between no we need to make fun of you and her refusing to let them Mm -hmm. i I just think it's it's such a it's such a well and tlc by itself has a lot of issues but i i think that that's just such a fascinating and it's like Okay, I'm going to start rambling. Never mind. I, I think that's just very interesting. Yeah, I love that TLC actually stands for the Learning Channel. And then you turn it on and you're like, okay, what are we learning about? Well, we're learning about the structure of abjection and yeah, forms see? of resistance to it. That's a dissertation right there. <laughs> yes. But yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's, um, you know, that, that what repels, you know, or, or sorry, what, 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 what resists abjection I think is always going to be a question like how do you resist abjection and it's mm-hmm. um you know there can be ways of 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 you know of, <coughs> of de-abjecting certain things right trying to, mm-hmm. to normalize say menstruation right and so that can be from you know, public discussions about should menstrual products be free and available in every bathroom and in public mm-hmm. spaces. And it's always interesting to me that there is real resistance to that. That's not economic, right? Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes you have people say like, oh, that's expensive. It's actually not. So then that doesn't really go very far. But then the idea that it like, shouldn't be public, it shouldn't be visible, like tells that whole story. And trying to... to to normalize these things that are previously abject, but not just abject, but abject to the point of being of of reproducing misogyny across time. Um, yeah. I think that's a really interesting like way of of intervening around the the sort of political economy of 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 the abject. But I find this mm-hmm. other thing very interesting, which is this turn away from the from the class of people who are abject turning away from the space that made them abject into their own space, whether that's between old women, right, mm-hmm. older women, or b- between that woman and herself, you know, if she's 75 mm-hmm. and sexual and isn't um, qualifying it and resisting all of these just through maybe just her own joy and pleasure, uh, resisting yeah. uh, her own abjection in the, in the televisual medium, that's interesting to me that like inner life as a form of resistance or alternative communities right the way witches as a mm-hmm. fear group is i mm-hmm. think part of why they're why they're sort of historically feared is because they are older women who are only concerned with each other and they're no yeah. longer a part of a society that can regulate them and transform their abjection once they shed the the primary abjections of childbirth and menstruation Right, then they become wrinkled and old and sterile and you know barren and all of these things which have their own forms of moral disgust but that turn to each other is fearsome 
right? And again, that's I, you know, the the, the relationship of abjection to to racism, anti-black racism, is deep, right? Around, you know, white people's mythologies about black people, the way they smell, the way their hair feels, the way their skin mm -hmm. looks, the way they age, the way they don't age, right? All of these regulations of the body that that traffic in abjection, and the mm -hmm. thing that's always been fearsome for for white people in an anti-black world is black people just talking to each other and having their own world and i think that translates in these mm -hmm. cases of uh, the kristeva case of just misogyny broadly of women talking to each other women in relation to each other or themselves outside the the sort of intergendered or whatever we would want to call it yeah. like the the patriarchal world is that's the scariest form of resistance in some way because you can't even mm -hmm. touch it with the language of abjection. Yeah. Yeah, I'm also, this is just a brief note, um, because there are um, two other things that I'm thinking about, which is actually, like, you know, that we've been talking about, like, women as sort of, like, their bodies as a site of abjection, but I'm also thinking about um, other actual sites of abjection. Um, but just one brief note, I'm also thinking about and this might be controversial, uh, American Horror Story season four was entitled Freak Show. And it was about a circus um, where all of these um, different people with either, um, I don't, it, they weren't, it wasn't even just disabilities. I mean, that, that wasn't even the term that they used. It was like they just had bodies that were different from what the symbolic order thought was okay and acceptable. And there's this really interesting scene where there is this um, white upper middle class woman who falls in love with one of the people in the circus. Um, and Oh gosh, yeah, that would be a, like an interesting essay to examine that season for both. Um, it's you know it has a lot of problematic elements, but it also has a lot of conversations about objection and how how much we're willing to accept, sort of like as taboo, and then what we actually reject. Mm -hmm. But this example that I'm thinking of, so she's you know she's a white upper middle class woman. She falls in love with. Um, this man that he has, um, his arms never fully developed. He's very heavily tattooed. He's short. Um, and her father is so horrified that she's in love with him that he hires a tattoo artist. The tattoo art that he drugs his daughter, the tattoo artist comes in and he tattoos her entire body forcibly. Hmm. And so when she wakes up, she is in the eyes of her father and in the eyes of the society that she grew up in abject. And her father tells her, now you can go be with him. Now it's acceptable. Hmm, interesting. And what's what's really interesting, though, and I hate when Ryan Murphy, who's the director, actually does something good, <laughs> He, she is accepted into the circus. They all sort of accept her. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's a really interesting... I mean, that whole season is all about the inner lives of these people in the circus and about you know their sexual lives their desires what they need what they want um how they interact with you know quote unquote normal society 
and then how they also reject a lot of parts of normal society and form relationships with each other. Um, yeah, and that's something that I think there's there's also a um, a book entitled Geek Love mm-hmm. that kind of um, makes the abject of um, like bodies that you see at the circus beautiful and it's a really interesting book um if anyone has the the chance to read it i I highly recommend it um but anyway that's just a kind of a side point um i don't know if you have anything you wanted to add to that yeah um so one of the things that i think is interesting then the way these these sort of contestations or resistance to abjection work is the there's the the mainstreaming of what has been abject to to de-abjectify it right to make Mm -hmm. it non-abject that's what normalization uh, would mean right and then there's this retreat into the the abject among themselves right to create Mm -hmm. alternative worlds that don't operate in a world that is always going to mean you know there's the struggle for normalization is fucking exhausting right it's like yeah. people don't want to live there right they want to live a, mm-hmm. a, a different kind of life and not just a life of resistance um but also but what's interesting to me is how when i think about these things just what it you know when you were saying like the that this the season of american horror story explores the inner lives and community lives of this of this group of people right mm-hmm. is just even how it's possible right and in what ways it's possible and what it would look like to imagine a world that is not at some deep level structured by abjection whether it's resistance to it or um or just living with it and documenting it and i just you know i think about how um when you know the the thinking about a world without abjection it's like even resistance to abjection is often you know has a phase or even just what seems can seem like a permanent state of calling those people abject who had made you abject there's something disgusting Mm. about you know men right and that's a way of sort of contesting patriarchy right that there's something abject about men and yeah. whether that's true or not, like aside, so like whether or not that's naming something important, I just want to set that aside. Yeah. So like for real, um, not avoid it, but set it aside. But it's like, how do we even imagine political resistance and political, uh, at the you know, in terms of the cultural imaginary and, and the symbolic order, how do we even think about resisting abjection without reversing abjection or rerouting abjection to somewhere where we feel like it's justified, palatable, or maybe deserved, right? Because I think, like, if you say in a patriarchal society, you know, to, to, to identify and exploit an abject element of men in that society is a form of revenge, right? Is a form of justice, right? Turnabout is fair play or something like that. And so I'm less interested, though, in debating that <clears throat> than I am in just, like, what does that tell us about our imagination, right? And, the, and I'll just offer this analogy of... It's like when we think about political transformation away from a violent society, like a white supremacist violent society, so often that's in terms of a counter-violence, right? But what would it mean to think about social transformation without returning the violence that's been done, right? Without, 
you know, in other words, without operating with the same concept, necropolitics, murderous violence, state of, 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 of uh, exception, or all of these ways in, in political theory that people will talk about, you know, racial justice, right? But I think abjection plays that same role about, it. this has such a command over our imagination and our action that it's hard to actually speak against an oppressive group without making them abject in some way. I find myself doing it and I'm like, it's interesting the way it seems to almost be a permanent fixture in the symbolic order. If we're thinking about transforming that symbolic order that we negotiate around abjection rather than negotiate abjection out of our space. Does that make sense? Kind of, I was gonna ask, what, like what's, do you have like an example of that sort of like reversal of abjection? Um, so toxic masculinity, okay. right? To think about, you know, men are predatory, you know, men are violent, men are um, uh, incapable, men are immature right uh men can't control their urges men are um you know uh aren't serious right so i mean any any of these things you could sort of list under toxic because again i'm not really saying like there's not truth value to these that these aren't observations about what patriarchal society has made of men but it's rather that the our intervention against that is and I say our, I'm meaning I'm talking about myself, right, is to deploy the language of abjection, right? That, that the point of all of that is to make men abject in a world where they've made women abject, right? Just to use a gender oh, okay. binary. And yeah. it's like, it's interesting that that abjection becomes that tool of, of organizing society at the level of the imagination, right? The gendered imagination or imagination of gender. And, you know, that's, again, that's not to say that's good or bad. It's just to, I, I, f I find myself having a hard time not using abjection, right? Yeah. I think this, uh, that word toxic masculinity is really interesting to me because I think it describes, it's one of the more potent terms I've seen sort of arise in popular usage in terms of its explanatory power and its capacity to harness our like moral judgment around these are bad mm -hmm. things and they ruin our political society. But it also is so hard to delink that from abjection talk. True. And yeah. I, I don't know what to do with that. You know, that's just for me, it's like, is abjection, I guess my big question is, is abjection just a, a foundation piece of the symbolic order? And it's always going to be a thing we negotiate around. Or is it something that itself can be negotiated away in some alternative vision? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's a well, good I, was, I was hoping you knew so we could chart uh, a different sorry. society disappointing <laughs> um i don't know i yeah i'm i'm wondering this might be a good transition into maybe a good transition into the essay i wrote about abjection yeah please in that and i might have to take this back so don't hold me to it <laughs> The, the, the benefits of abjection or the importance of abjection? Because I know, you know, what, what you, the question that you're posing is more related to, you know, political, <clears throat> um, social relations 
And the kind of abjection that I talk about in my essay is the sort of abjection that comes with change. Mm. Um, so I'm just wondering, so this might be an example of how abjection might actually assist in sort of structuring our understanding of who we once were individually and also as a group and who we are now. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the essay that I wrote is about um, Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov. And it is about reading Lolita, reading and rereading, which is the important part, Lolita as horror. Hmm. So basically what I talk about, and I wish I had Morgan here because Morgan, this is Morgan's thing. And Morgan would probably say a lot of this a lot better than I would. But the essay basically explores what it's like to read Lolita and then to reread Lolita as a young girl and then as a young woman. Mm. So reading Lolita as a young girl, you are Lolita or you identify with Lolita because you are either the age Lolita was or you want the kind of power that Humbert Humbert ascribes to Lolita. So there is this scene where Humbert Humbert is describing, I'm just going to call him Humbert from now on. That's, okay. that's awesome. <laughs> sure. um, he describes what a nymphette is. Um, so he basically says that a nymphette has this fantastic power over older men. A power, it's a, I think the quote is, a soul-shattering, insidious charm. And he compares that with, and this is another quote, the nymphette from her plumpish, formless, cold-skinned sisters. Hmm. And my argument is, in a society where girls, young girls, ascribe a lot of power and agency to their adherence to sort of sexualized images of womanhood you know especially and this is i'm citing a scholar here this is um, margaret l um, mcladry she says you know girls for a lot of girls the only way that they can access power especially in that in-between period as a teenager again the liminal space mm -hmm. is by adhering to sexualized images of womanhood and so to hear humbert affirm their power as sexual beings it can be very validating it can feel like oh well i want to have power i don't want to be a plumpish cold-skinned little girl i want to be the nymphette i want to have power in this world mm -hmm. and i can't have power unless I fit into these images. And so you read that as a young girl, right? And then it's the rereading that creates the abjection. So there's this disconnect because of course, Humbert is an unreliable narrator and Nabokov's whole point in writing Lolita is for the readers to catch these little um, tricks that he puts in. So that scene where he's talking about nymphettes a quote-unquote typical audience is supposed to 
be able to see through it to his pedophilic intentions. <laughs> but for a young girl reading that, and I, I say in this sort of really dark, ironic twist, the only two people who could actually relate to what Humbert says about Nymphets without any sense of estrangement or disgust or objection are either um, other pedophiles or Nymphets. And I think that that's a really interesting thing that occurs. Hmm. And I think it gets even more interesting as you grow up as a young girl and become a young woman and reread Lolita. And I think within that gap of girlhood and womanhood between the first and the second reading, this is where I think abjection comes in. Um, and the important, the one quote, and this is a quote that I, I think is one of the most important things, at least in terms of my scholarship in um, Kristeva's essay on abjection, is nothing is familiar, not even the shadow of a memory. Mm. So when you reread Lolita as a young woman, when you reread that scene about Nymphets, after you've idolized it as a young girl, there is that sensation of unfamiliarity. Nothing is familiar. You know, oh my gosh, you know, there, there's blatant pedophilia in this. We, how the heck did I miss that the first time, right? Mm -hmm. But then there's this second, this, this darker sensation, and it is the defilement of the memory of it. Mm -hmm. So in rereading, it's, the, it's this idea that not only was Humbert's narration, not, not only is the narration malevolent now, but it always was. Mm-hmm. And that, th that kind of creates, and you know, and this, this is where it starts to get a little bit autobiographical. I mean, that was fucking horrifying for me. Mm -hmm. To read that back, you have, to, I mean, I had to rethink my entire girlhood. Hmm. I had to rethink all my perceptions of what I thought formed my self-worth as a, a girl and now as a woman. And so it, this rereading, it defiles not only <clears throat> perceptions of the novel, but of our formation of our identity hmm. as girls and, uh, and as women. And it kind of, I mean, for me, I've had, <laughs> I've had to go through and just kind of think what is, you know, even like the tiniest things become frightening mm. because they are, I, I can't tell is this me or is this Humbert? Who, who, you know, is my, you know, my perception of what, you know, what outfits are cute or, you know, the way that I do my hair or the way I do my makeup, the way that I interact with men, how much of that was tainted by what was always there in the text, but I just didn't recognize. And that is, I think, one of the key things in objection is this, this idea that not only is this thing unfamiliar now, you know, not only, it, you know, the, the corpse is not just frightening because it's unfamiliar now, it's frightening because it's, al it's always there. Yeah. And you have to recognize that I am a corpse. I've always been that way. And I think that's, that horror is really interesting i don't know anyway yeah no <laughs> this is conference talk there. <laughs> this is a great conference talk no this is totally fascinating and in, in, yeah. in many ways and i think that um that uh part of it for me too is um 
you know, you mentioned it and it was sort of an aside. You said like, again, this interstitial space, right? Mm -hmm. I think those, those like interstitial spaces, those in-betweens are so interesting. I think they're interesting unto themselves. Yeah. And that's sort of, I think like Derrida and Spivak are really especially interested in the sort of silences of the in-between. But what you're talking about really is the loudness of those in-betweens, right? Mm -hmm. um, and interestingly, the abject, almost like the abjection of not being a young woman, right? Of just being like a little girl, right? I, I forget the, the phrasing that you had, but it was like they're something that's like they're sort of misshapen bodies. I don't, I don't think you use the word misshapen, but no. as, um, <laughs> but that the, you know, it was a, I think it was a quote from Lolita. Um, yeah. The, the plump, formless, formless, yeah. formless, cold skin, plump. These are interesting abjection words because they are, yeah. they are about, you know, they, they're the opposite, right? The, the overly formed elderly woman body, right? That's wrinkles and oh. and so forth, and then the formlessness, and it's that in between of form, you know, that makes sense at the symbolic level, but like, what is the formless and the? Uh, I mean, that's my phrase: the overly formed, uh, elderly body. Um, that's interesting to think about, like what those, yeah. what that that what what form is, right, and how it functions yeah. in those ways to stave off abjection right or to divert from abjection so that you're not just the abject formless or the overly formed um, uh -huh. um, and instead can play then that role in the symbolic order of the the you know production of the erotic patriarchal gaze right yeah. pedophilia um right or predatory or however we want to put it while also embodying because of that right what comes along with that is the what can't be seen or said right about a, mm. about being about menstruating right about yeah. about being quote a woman now right wow yeah and I, now i'm thinking i mean i don't think uh dolores hate she doesn't make it past 17. and so that's really interesting just thinking about this like she never gets to be overly formed you know i would love to see <laughs> a story about Dolores Hayes as an old woman. Yeah, Dolores in Scottsdale, right? Retired in Arizona. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Just, like, you know, I mean, I can't, I'm not a novelist, but I could come up with some good titles, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Wow. Uh, Lolita in Scottsdale, you know, sitting by the pool <laughs> and the, the, you know, in the retirement community. But these are unspeakable, right? And, and at mm. some point, at some level, not some point, at some level, even just representing them, they have to be comedic about their agedness. They can't be serious about their agedness. You know, there was um, a movie that just came out, and, and I didn't see it, so I, I shouldn't say anything more than just what the trailer was. It may be totally different, as movies often are, than the trailer. But it had, like, Lily Tomlin, I think Jane Fonda... It was about Tom, going to see Tom Brady play. Do you know this film? No. Yeah, God, I can't believe now. I'm not going to remember the title now that we're talking and this is recording. Well, here I can look at. I can look it up. He's got Jane Fonda and who else? I think um, Lily Tomlin. And if you just say Jane Fonda, Tom Brady, I'm sure it pops up. Um, but the trailers are all about how ridiculous these women are. Mm. Going oh, 80, 80 for Brady? 80 for Brady, yeah. 
or moving on. I, yeah, yeah, there's lots of different titles. Anyway, sorry. And so that this so it, the trailers were so interesting to me, and it, and it came out as I had formed the syllabus, and I was actually thinking, you know. Um, I should see the film to see if this is like an outing for the class to go see this film. Yeah. <laughs> but even just the trailers are, it's, but the trailers aren't remarkable in the sense of you might watch a trailer and say like, oh, I've, that's, this could be any trailer about a group of older women, right? Because they're just ridiculous, right? And it's just ridiculous that they might be going out and drinking and ogling men or, you know, this the old woman ogling men is like this ridiculous, you know, it's like our, it's like a comedic version of the witch, right? There should be a word for it. Um, but it's like ridiculous that she would ogle, right? But there's nothing ridiculous about, say, the, you know, 20 something women, you know, going crazy in a Magic Mike trailer, right? But yeah. there is something ridiculous about them going crazy about, you know, whoever. I think it's probably Tom Brady in the in the trailer. Um, mm. But again, that like you know that 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 goes to the TLC, <laughs> goes to like the post, you know, Lolita life, right? What does it mean to be seventy-seven rather than seventeen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also, you know, and this is, you know, I, I come back to this really just in purely in the interrogative, like, like, you know, in what ways is our imagination of all of these movements still animated by abjection? Like, is abjection, this is a question for like psychoanalysis and cultural studies broadly, <laughs> like, can we actually think about our social order, our political order, our cultural order without abjection? Just being moved around, like maybe in a in a way that that liberates a, a, a you know historically abject group, like we may be able to shift it to liberate that group from that 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 category, right? The categorization, but can we really imagine a world without it? It's so hard to think about. I mean, that may be that some deep in some deep way the meaning of anarchy, right, is to live without abjection. You know? yeah. um, I mean, I mean this to be like you know, because it is it is a book about about the body. What would it mean to have a bathroom without stalls? Yeah, I mean, I just there's. I mean, I've, I've seen it's a it was a meme. I don't even know if it was real or a Photoshop, but I remember this meme going around for a while, and it was you know had various kinds of comments on it. It was just two toilets facing each other in a public yeah, bathroom. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that. And it's like, for me, I was like, that that's such a compelling, like, utopian vision at some level. Yeah. Like, if you think about abjection as a primary problem, right, or a primary yeah. tool of oppression, it's like, this is a utopian vision, but not the utopia we're ready to see. We're ready for, like, flying cars and, like, not having to go to work, but instead paint and read poetry and write or you know look at photographs and socialize we, we love those utopias but is that that's a utopia without abjection and maybe the fact that it doesn't strike us as utopian is a sign that you know abjection is here to stay <laughs> yeah i think like that and i think that that's this might be probably not it might be a way in is like the di like discomfort facing discomfort mm -hmm. that might be you know, because it's like you can't you can't do anything unless you're uncomfortable. I mean, you have to kind of put yourself into a situation that pushes against your boundaries as a 
you know, without breaking them. And I think that that, you know, because a lot of people want Utopia without having to do anything. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, yeah, I can see a class with like the Elms page having that image on it. The two toilets facing each other, abjection and Utopia. Pretty interesting. See, you got to go on, finish a PhD, and teach that class. Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I will come in and guest lecture and say I was there when Emma when Emma <laughs> created this, you know, class title, but most importantly, the image on Elm's page. <laughs> all right. Well, maybe we should uh, leave it there. That's a that's a nice place to leave it. But this has been fantastic. I uh, I know that this was a. a a text that you were particularly looking forward to and uh, mm -hmm. I see why it's a super interesting yeah. stuff um, <laughs> I'm glad we had a chance to talk about it yeah me too all right take care you too